We all know what an epithet is, right? You know, it's a short statement about a deceased person, sort of a tombstone tagline for your life. And some epitaphs are profound, like this one from Martin Luther King Jr. Free at last, free at last, thank God Almighty, I'm free at last. It's powerful. Some are a little more defiant, like this one from Wild West gunslinger Clay Allison. He never killed a man that didn't need killing. Okay. Some are on message, like this one from game show creator Merv Griffin. I will not be right back after this message. It's true. Some are funny, like this one from comedian Rodney Dangerfield. There goes the neighborhood. Again, no respect, no respect. And some are just spot on, like this one from cartoonist Mel Blanc, who undoubtedly said this in his best porky pig voice. That's all, folks. (laughs) Those are epitaphs. My question this morning is, what will your epitaph say? You know, it's hard to sum up a life in a line. But if you had to, if you absolutely had to, I mean, there's not a lot of room on a tombstone, and they do charge for every letter. So if you had to sum up your life in a line, what would the line of your life say? Well, our text this morning compels us to wrestle with just that as we seek to grow in understanding a life of faith. Let's turn together to Hebrews chapter 11. Hebrews 11. We're now in the third week of our Life of Faith summer series. Two weeks ago, Ryan kicked off the series for us, and he reminded us that faith is being certain of what we hope for and sure of what we do not see. Last week, Brian took us to the life of Abel and talked about one who is all in holding nothing back from God. And today, we want to look at one of the more interesting, but perhaps one of the little-known characters in Scripture— So look with me at Hebrews 11 and verse 5. By faith, Enoch was taken up so that he would not see death. And he was not found because God took him up. For he obtained the witness that before his being taken up, he was pleasing to God. Well, that's interesting. Enoch was taken up so he'd not see death. (laughs) I definitely want to know the rest of that story. And if your Bible has cross-references, then it's going to tell you right there to go to Genesis chapter 5. So keep your finger in Hebrews, and we're going to go back into Genesis today in Genesis chapter 5. Last week we were in chapter 4. And Brian also brought the context of chapters 1, 2, and 3, before and after the fall. 
And now this week, we see in Genesis chapter 5 that the writer turns to what he calls the generations of Adam. And this chapter is just a recollection of that. So he starts in verse 1 saying, this is the book of the generations of Adam. And he talks about Adam. And then he goes on to talk about Adam had a son named Seth. And Seth shows up in verse 6. And then in verse 9, we read about Enosh. In verse 12, about Kenan. In verse 15, about Mahalalel. In verse 18, Jared, who was the father of Enoch. Which brings us to verse 21, where we pick it up in Genesis 5 and 21. Enoch lived 65 years and became the father of Methuselah. Then Enoch walked with God 300 years after he became the father of Methuselah, and he had other sons and daughters. So all the days of Enoch were 365 years. Enoch walked with God, and he was not, for God took him. Methuselah lived one... Wait, wait a minute. Where's the rest? Is that it? I must be missing a page or something here. Nope. That's it. That's all we've got. Just a few verses here in Genesis. His name is listed in the genealogies of Chronicles and Luke. There's a reference to the prophecy of Enoch in the book of Jude. That's it. And he is in the Hebrews 11 hall of faith. Why? And what can we possibly learn from Enoch that would impact how you and I live our lives? Interestingly, there's actually a lot more about Enoch found in extra biblical sources. In fact, there's an entire apocryphal book called the book of Enoch. But the challenge is is that extra-biblical material was not deemed reliable enough to be included in the canon of Scripture. And so somehow the only material God allowed to be included in the canon of Scripture is this. This brief narrative in Genesis 5 and the commendation of Enoch in Hebrews chapter 11. So, maybe this tiny bit of information is enough. Maybe we don't need lots of information to be impacted. Maybe, in fact, an entire life can be summed up in a line. Look at it again. Chapter 5 and verse 21, Enoch lived 65 years and became the father of Methuselah. Then Enoch walked with God 300 years after he became the father of Methuselah, and he had other sons and daughters. So all the days of Enoch were 365 years. Enoch walked with God, and he was not, for God took him. Do you notice the one thing that was repeated twice? I mean, this is all we have, this tiny bit of information, but something is repeated twice. That is significant. Verse 22, Enoch walked with God. Verse 24, Enoch walked with God. And the phrase translated walked with God was used only of Enoch and Noah. 
and it denotes, as one commentator puts it, the closest communion with the personal God, a walking, as it were, by the side of God. It speaks of a special intimacy with God. It harkens back to the garden before the fall when Adam and Eve would walk with God in the cool of the day. And apparently, the way Enoch lived and walked with God day by day completely changed the so-called end of his story. And what makes this narrative even more striking is when you look at it in the overall context of the narrative of Genesis 5. Because over and over in Genesis 5, we're told about different people, and how we're told about them is the same. So-and-so lived and did such-and-such and became the father of, and he died. Look at it with me. It begins with Adam. And in verse 3, we read that Adam lived and became the father of a son. But then at the end of verse 5, it says, and he died. Then in verse 6, we read, Seth lived and became the father of. At the end of verse 8, and he died. Verse 9, Enosh lived and became the father of. Verse 11, and he died. Verse 12, Kenan lived and became the father of. Verse 14, and he died. Verse 15, Mahalalel lived and became the father of. Verse 17, and he died. Verse 18, Jared lived and became the father of. Verse 20, and he died. Then to verse 25, Methuselah lived and became the father of. And then verse 27, and he died. And verse 28, Lamech became the father of. And in verse 31, and he died. From Adam all the way to Noah, the story is told in exactly the same way, except for Enoch. Verse 22, Enoch walked with God. Verse 24, Enoch walked with God. Verse 24, God took him. Wow. What a striking contrast. It's also interesting to note the wording in verse 22. Then Enoch walked with God 300 years after he became the father of Methuselah, and he had other sons and daughters after he became the father of Methuselah. Now, it is quite possible that Enoch walked with God before he became the father of Methuselah. And the verse is simply trying to tell the timeline of his life after the birth of his son. But some scholars do believe that this is indicating there was a change in the trajectory of Enoch's life after the birth of his first son. And if so... He certainly would not be the only man who changed the direction, the focus, and the goal of his life after becoming a dad. You know, this morning, we have the privilege of celebrating together Father's Day. And all throughout this room are dads and granddads. And I want to say just a word to anyone here this morning who is a dad or a granddad. The first thing that I want to say is thank you. Thank you. You know, just 
The fact that you're here right now says something about you. Because there are many, many men in our culture who would rather be anywhere on a morning like this other than in a place like this. You're here, worshiping and seeking the living God. I thank you, dads and granddads. You know, I'm thankful for my dad. I love my dad, and I have a good relationship with my dad. He can't be here in person. I say hi. I know he's watching online. But my dad would be the first one to tell you we didn't always have a great relationship. In fact, when I was a kid, it was pretty tough. And that impacted me. I remember when I was in college, after I became a Christian, saying to God, Lord, if I don't do anything else in all of this life, if I don't accomplish anything else all the rest of my days, if I could just be a good dad, that would be enough for me. And you know, I was beginning to walk with God before I ever became a dad. But then, just over 29 years ago, my firstborn son, Josh, who's sitting right over there, came into the world. And I immediately realized I did not have the capacity and the character to be for that boy and my future coming kids who they needed me to be. And it was a moment of change for me to begin to dig deeper into my relationship with God, to seek to grow my character and my capacity that I might show up in a way that my kids needed. And I was far from a perfect dad, but I am so thankful for the grace of God poured out on me as I sought to love and lead my kids over these past decades. I was listening to a thing on MyBridge Radio this week, and I found it interesting. They were interviewing the author of a book on fatherhood. And he was talking about the role of a dad, and he said an interesting thing. He said, you know, all of us as men, we kind of have this built-in instinct with us to be dad, and what we mean that to be is the protector. You know, we would do anything to protect our families. And this guy said so much on the radio, he said most men would literally lay down their life or even take a life if that's what it took, if an intruder uh, was coming in their door, if a threat came through that door, that's what they do to protect their family. But then this author said something that really struck me. He said the problem is we, miss the, we misunderstand and forget to realize that for the vast majority of us, the threat will never come through that door. But in fact, the threat in that family may be dad himself. The distracted dad. The impatient dad. The angry dad who's not safe. The passive dad. You know, I think one of the challenges for us as dads is that most of us, we want to make a difference. 
Man, we want to know that our life counts. We want to leave our mark on the world, but often we think the way to do that must be somewhere out there. But on this Father's Day, dads and granddads, let us be reminded that the greatest mark you will ever make on the world will be the imprint that you make on your kids. I think that makes Enoch the perfect Hebrews 11 exemplar for a Father's Day message because Enoch walked with God after he became the father of Methuselah. Verse 24, Enoch walked with God and he was not for God took him. Now, if that's all we had, we might be left to wonder, what does it mean when it says God took him? But the understanding of took him is made fully clear by the author of Hebrews. So you have your finger there, hopefully flip back. Let's look back at our main passage in Hebrews chapter 11. Here he says, by faith Enoch was taken up so that he would not see death. And he was not found because God took him up. What does took him up mean? Enoch would not see death. He did not die. He was not found because God took him up. Extraordinary. Literally extra, not ordinary. Somehow, God gave Enoch the gift of being translated from this life to the next without going through the gateway of death by which every other person enters eternity. And begs the question, why? Why did God do that? Well, the writer of Hebrews tells us right here in the verse. Enoch was taken up by faith so he would not see death and he was not found because God took him up for... Because he obtained the witness that before his being taken up, he was pleasing to God. He was pleasing to God. The Septuagint is the Greek translation of the Hebrew scriptures that was used in the first century. And when the writer of the Septuagint was translating Genesis 5 and looking at this walk with God, which Enoch had, he studied the Hebrew and brought it into the Greek and brought in this idea of what a walk with God is, is to please God. And so then the writer of Hebrews carries forward this idea that Enoch was pleasing to God. And this intimate, beautiful, obedient, abiding, continuing relationship with Enoch, with God that Enoch had, was so pleasing to God that God simply took him without him having to go through the cycle that we face, which is death, and then as Christians in Christ, resurrection once again. 
And so here in Hebrews, the writer says Enoch was pleasing to God. That's why God took him. And in that moment, as he's writing about Enoch, he interrupts what's going to be a a series of stories about people of faith to make a compelling point. The author of Hebrews is compelled at this point to say what he says in verse 6. First, the end of verse 5, Enoch was pleasing to God. And then verse 6, and without faith. It is impossible to please him. Impossible. How is it impossible to please God? Without faith. By not having faith. Brings a very, very important question for us, doesn't it? What is faith? We talk about it all the time. But what does it mean to live by faith? Faith. You know, often we use the words faith and belief almost interchangeably, and that's understandable. But in Scripture, faith and belief are not exactly the same. Faith always comes from God and involves His revelation. Therefore, faith goes beyond belief. And this word translated faith here involves belief, but it goes beyond human believing and it involves personal revelation, the inworking of God. And Homer Kent Jr. says, faith is the divinely given conviction of things unseen, bringing us right back to Hebrews 11.1. You know, when we talk about the nuanced difference Between the idea of belief and the idea of faith, there's a really important scripture reference that we have to look at. And it's James 2.19. This is what it says. It says, you believe that God is one. You do well. The demons also believe and shudder. Wow. James is not trying to make something really, really clear. You see, the demons knew who God was. They believe. They know exactly who he is. We see in the Gospels over and over that when Jesus was walking on the earth, the first ones to know fully that he was God in the flesh were the demons. And they shuddered. They believe in Jesus. They believe in God. They know he is God. They know Jesus is God. That does not mean that the trajectory of their life and heart is turned toward God. Instead, they shudder and run exactly in the opposite direction. The world is filled with people who believe in God. That's not what Hebrews is talking about in terms of living by faith. When I try to understand it, I think an illustration is sometimes helpful. So I have a chair sitting up here, just a normal chair, but I I wanted to pick a pretty good one. And I'm just here to tell you this morning, I believe in this chair. I think this is a good one. I think it's solid, seems well constructed. I believe that anyone could sit here. This chair would do its job. It'd take good care of you. I believe in the chair. Do I have faith? Well, the way that I demonstrate faith is not to sit here all day saying I believe in the chair. There's a very simple and easy way to demonstrate my faith, and that is to sit in the chair. For I have now put my faith in this chair. I am trusting this chair. 
I could even put my feet up. I'm 100% trusting this chair. And if this chair is not a good chair, if this chair is not reliable, I'm going to end up in an embarrassing mess on this floor. I am demonstrating faith in this chair, for I have entrusted myself to this chair. I think that helps me to distinguish the difference between that which is only in my head of something that I say I believe and what Hebrews is talking about of a faith which involves trusting in the object of our belief. And he says in verse 6, without faith it is impossible to please him. For, because... He who comes to him must believe that he is and that he is a rewarder of those who seek him. Two things. The first thing he says, it's impossible to please God without faith for because we must believe if we're coming to him that he is. We must believe in the great I am, the infinite, sovereign, omnipotent, present God the God who always was, the God who is, the God who I mention all the time is right here with us this morning, present with us in this room. But you don't see him. I don't see him. Seems kind of crazy, doesn't it? I mean, for all of our life, we're taught how to know things. And typically the way that we come to know something is through our senses, our five senses, through what we see, through what we hear, what we smell, what we taste, or what we touch. But we gather together and say, hey, no, you need to entrust your life and believe in one who is completely unseen. And people go, that just seems crazy. It's not that crazy. We actually do it all the time. I want to illustrate it for you this morning. So I want everybody to just be quiet for a moment, and I want you to listen to the music in the room. Just, just listen. You hear it? You hear the Christian music that's playing? I think there's, some, I think there's also some classic rock and roll. You hear that? There's a baby. I think there's some country music playing. Brian Clark must be around here somewhere. He always comes in my office and switches it to country to mess with me. You don't hear the music? You must think that guy really is crazy. I promise you, it's playing. I'm gonna prove it to you. I went down to my basement this week to dig around and see if I still had one of these. Some of our younger people here today have no idea what this is. But I still had one. And Matthew got me some batteries, thankfully, so I think it'll work. So if I tune this, turn this thing on, let's just see what happens. Well, that doesn't sound great. Let's try this thing. Let's see if I, what if I go like, oh, there we go. We got, we got something there. I better put the antenna up. Okay. I don't know what that is. Maybe somebody knows what that is. Let's see what else. The long guy. If you plan me, that be my home. Okay. Having nightmares are going through your phone. That's playing. That's going on. All right. Let's go. Mm-hmm. Oh yeah. 
car and get up to four grand. People are talking. Yeah. Definitely. Definitely some country music. Brian would like this. And as promised, I know there's some Christian music somewhere in here. Gotta be. Maybe. In the Gospel of John. Oh, hey. not chosen I'll just sit down. You guys can just listen to this one. Might be better. When the Lord called me. The music was here the entire time. Where do you think it came from? Think it came from this? See, this, there's no cassette in here. There's no CD. There's no digital file. This is just a receiver. Because the music is coming through sound waves that are here and playing right now. You didn't hear them, and I didn't hear them. And there's a reason. You gotta have the right equipment to hear it. You have to have a receiver. You know what Paul told the Corinthians? He said the things of God are spiritually discerned and the natural man cannot understand them. But do you know what happens when we come to faith in Jesus Christ? Everything changes. We're not only forgiven, we are brought back into right relationship with the living God. And through his Holy Spirit, we are literally indwelt by God, which means we now have the opportunity to connect with the unseen God. Anytime, any place. My friends, that music is always Playing, And if you are in Christ, you have the equipment to receive it. Which leaves just one important question. Are we tuning in? Are we tuning to God? See, the first thing that he says is impossible to please God without faith because we must believe that he is, and then second, that he is a rewarder of those who seek him. Maybe your Bible says earnestly seek him. The word that's translated here means to seek out, emphasizing the personal intent of the seeker. For example, the outcome intensely and personally desired by the seeker. William Lane says the description of God as a rewarder serves to characterize Enoch and others as persons who relied firmly on God and found in him the source of their deepest satisfaction. So let's try and put this all together. The writer of the Hebrews is telling this amazing story about Enoch, who by faith walked with God and lived a life so pleasing to God that God literally took him to be with himself. And in that context, that writer is compelled to make a universal point applicable to all people, and he says this, without faith, it's impossible to please God. Why? Because the person who comes to God, who, like Enoch, would seek to walk with God, must live continually doing two things. Believing, trusting that he is, and believing, trusting that he rewards those who earnestly seek him. 
But what does that actually look like? We talk about faith all the time around here, but let's get practical. How can we actually live like this? Can I tell you what I'm just trying to do in my life as a follower of Christ? Pretty simple. I'm trying to learn to grow to not be an atheist, or at least a practical atheist. Now some of you are going, uh, thought he was a pastor? Here's what I mean. I have a relationship with the living God of all. In fact, by his spirit, the infinitely good, all-knowing God, the omnipotent creator God is literally always with me. I am never away from his presence and the opportunity to have him change my life. And yet, let's be honest, countless times, even every day, I live trusting in whom? In me, in my own wisdom, in my own strength. I live life on my own. And in so doing, practically, I'm no different than an atheist. And are we thinking that God is somehow going to just take over? God will not overcome your will. But he is ready. He is waiting. He is inviting you to tune to him, to turn toward him, to trust in him any moment, at any time, in any situation or circumstance you face. Friends, we need to grow in cultivating a daily, continual practice of tuning in, tuning to, and trusting in. Now, what does that mean? Let's get even more practical. What does it mean to turn toward or tune to God? It can mean a lot of things. I can be in any situation at any time, and I can turn and just start talking to God. I can talk to him about something going on in my life, which is called the prayer of supplication. I can talk to something that I'm concerned about for someone else, which is called a prayer of intercession. I can realize I'm struggling to believe truth or I'm feeling overwhelmed, and I can open up the scripture. I can read his truth. I can be worried about financial provision and turn to Matthew 6 and see what kind of character is the God that I serve, the one who so cares for the birds of the air and the lilies of the field and says, I am so much more valuable to him than are they. I can call a friend in a life group and say, would you pray with me? Or would you share truth with me? These are all simple, easy ways I can turn toward God. I can tune to God, seeking to live a Godward life. I could do that in any moment. That's tuning to. Then what is trusting in? Trusting in is based on tuning to God and who he is, choosing to believe and entrust myself, my circumstances, my situation to him. Choosing to believe him, not just in a general sense, but in this moment. Here's a few illustrations. Maybe I'm sitting at home and I'm just doing my finances, which I do, and I'm looking at my bank account and I'm looking at the bills and I start to feel a little stressed. Or for me, maybe I start looking at my retirement statements and every time they come in, it's not looking good and I wonder how are we gonna live when we retire? 
And I can try to manage that on my own. I can try to handle that on my own. But I also am invited right in that moment to tune to God. And to remember what I just said from Matthew 6, that he is a good God who promises to care for me. And as I tune to God and begin to renew my mind on the truth of who he is, then I actually have the opportunity to choose to then rest in God, to trust in God, to entrust my finances and my situation to God. Friends, we can do that with any circumstance in life. When I'm concerned about my kids, something that's happening to them, or maybe even a decision or a choice that they're making, I can just choose to fret. I can choose to try to handle it on my own. I can try to control their behavior, maybe even manipulate their behavior. Or I can choose to tune to God, reminding myself, renewing my mind on the fact that that omnipotent God loves those kids more than I ever could. And I can bring my kids before God and I can literally entrust whatever that situation and that circumstance is to this good God. What about when you feel like the entire world is coming at you or turning against you? Man, I can tune to God by faith and trust in God. What about when I find some area of my life that I need to grow in or change in, and I've tried this program and this effort, and nothing seems to be working. I've been trying to do it on my own. Turn to, tune to, and trust in God by faith. What about when my relationship with my spouse or another friend is strained and I'm upset? I can try to handle that all on my own. But I have the privilege, I have the opportunity, I can right then tune to and trust in God. You see, a life of faith doesn't have to be just some abstract concept. It can be deeply personal and greatly practical because God is here and God is good. As the writer to Hebrews said, God is and God is the rewarder of those who seek him. And living by faith, trusting him, turning to him, can actually change us in whatever circumstance we face. The late Ray Steadman said, the walk with God which Enoch experienced was one of deepening intimacy. A walk implies a journey in a certain direction and at a measured and regular pace. Enoch is an example to the readers of Hebrews of what the writer longed to see happen in them, a steady, daily growth in grace achieved by the inner resources which God supplies to those who take him at his word and act in faith on what he has said. Now let me ask you this. If the rhythm of my life is such that I tune to and trust in God, say, once a month, or no, let's say once a week, I come to church, I hear a message, I tune my heart and my mind to God, and then I go out and live the rest of the week in my own strength. Do you think anyone would describe me as a person who walked with God? But what if once twice, five times, 10 times, 
20 plus times a day as I am going through my day. I am increasingly learning to tune to and trust in God. Then how would someone describe me? Like Enoch of old, we too can walk with God. And we too can enjoy experiencing an intimate and transformative relationship with God if we will but seek by faith to tune to and trust in our good God. You know, if we could find Enoch's tombstone, which we can't because there never was one, but imagine that there was. If we were to look at his epitaph, what would it say? I'm quite certain it would say Enoch walked with God. Enoch walked with God and lived in such an intimate and pleasing relationship with God that God just took him to be with himself. Now that is a powerful epithet. So now, what will mine say? What will yours? Let's pray. Jesus, thank you for the example of Enoch. Thank you, God, that you teach us that faith is not just some concept but that is actually how we go about living in your presence, the presence of an unseen God, moment by moment, day by day. Oh God, stir our hearts, stir up your spirit within us, call us to yourself, compel us into your presence. May we not be so foolish as to be the children of the king and to live like in poverty like an atheist who doesn't even know God. May we not miss out on the opportunities that we have for your strength, your encouragement, your hope. God, for you to meet us every moment of every day because you are and you reward those who earnestly seek you. Teach us, Jesus, to live by faith for your glory and our good. In your name we pray, amen.